0: everybody, welcome. This is Mike Ski for another edition of Private Eyes Are Watching You. I'm really honored and humbled today to have an amazing guest, Bill Ryan from New York City. Bill has had a long and distinguished career as a detective with the NYPD. He's investigated some of the most high-profile cases and situations. I want to welcome him and introduce him. Bill, thank you again for being on the show. Thank you. So, Bill, tell us being on here. Absolutely. Absolutely. Tell our listeners a little bit about your uh, career as an NYPD detective and then how you transitioned from there to becoming a private investigator.
1: Well, thank you for asking. I I appreciate that. I uh, served 20 years with the NYPD. I'm the son of a cop. Uh, You know, we have a big law enforcement family. Uh, I came on in uh, 1984 uh, when there was a big hiring where they were bringing in 2000 guys at a time. And, uh, you know, started out normally enough doing street enforcement. Uh, I was lucky enough to work my way through to narcotics, to plain clothes. I spent the last 13 of my years uh, as a member of the NYPD Arson and Explosion Squad, where we investigated bombings and fires. And uh, my particular uh, Specialty was a serial arsonist, mostly to people who were doing houses of worship, serial bombers, uh, and it was exciting time uh, in New York to be doing that. Um, you know, we learned a lot, and uh, you know the city changed in those years, and it was, it was it was exciting to be there and work with a lot of great people, and uh, it, it was it was a great thing. I got to work on both Trade Center attacks, the 1993 attack. I just came into the squad. I think. Uh, it was my third or fourth case. And uh, my partner was retiring. The guy I was replacing, that was his last day on the job. And, uh, you know, it, to go from, I, I was literally running around in crack houses a year before this in East New York. And, uh, you know, a year later, I'm, I'm in the biggest, uh, terrorism case at, at least at that time, uh, to whatever happened in the United States. And, uh, it was great. Got to work with a lot of great people in the ATF, the FBI, um, you know, learned a great deal, but uh, it, it was exciting. And then, of course, you know, I was around for the uh, the last attack in the Trade Center. Oh, and, you know, again, uh, another exciting case to work on. But, uh, you know, I remember when the 93 bombing happened, I remember telling my, my dad, I said, wow, my, wow. Friend, my friend, the squad, and I'm in the Super Bowl. I said, what will ever happen that will top that? And he was uh, in his typical Dublin brogue and uh, – top attitude. Don't worry, something bigger will happen. And, you know, wow. Uh, yeah, I wasn't kidding.
0: Man, Bill, I, I want to talk to you about the 93 bombing just a little bit, because a lot of people forget that either they were too young at the time, or, you know, obviously, it was, um, you know, surpassed in uh, devastation by 9-11. But I want to take take our listeners and viewers back even a little bit further. So you said you started in 1984. Now, I grew up in New York, but not the city, and when I grew up, I I was born in 74, so I remember the only stories coming out of New York that I could remember as a kid in the late 70s and early 80s was crime rate was high, things were out of control in certain areas of the city, and around the time you started is when New York really was starting to say, look, we're going to crack down, we're going to clean things up, We, we have a city here to be proud of. And and we've got to get it to a place where people don't think you know you're going to walk down the street in New York City and get mugged. Um, Tell us about you know I mean that's that's a I mean the wave of officers they were hiring at that time was just tremendous and Two thousand
1: every uh, six months. I mean you know you think people I don't think people realize how big the NYPD is. You know if we were uh, considered an army, I think we'd be considered the eighth largest army in the world. I mean we have. 40,000 uniformed cops. And that doesn't include all the uh, civilian workers who make things possible. And uh, I mean, that's, that's just 40,000 officers. I mean, I, I mean, it's tiring to think about that many people, but you know, it's also yeah. make people realize how big New York is, you know, it, but you know, it's funny when you, when you look at the map of New York, you know, uh, where, this tiny little lip at the bottom of the state, you know, you're a Buffalo guy. So you, know, you're up on top there by Canada, but uh, you know, the, the population in the city is so huge. And outside of the, you know, the, you know, the 8 million stories of the Naked City, you know, there's, there's probably another 2 or 3 million that come in every day from other states to work, do business, go to school. And, uh, you know, it, it's a big city. So you need a lot of people to, to do what you got to do. Yeah. Was I,
0: remember, um, I remember when I was in the Coast Guard, the entire Coast Guard um, service members was just a little bit less than the New York City Police Department. We had around 35 36,000 members in, in the Coast Guard and that and that's the entire country everything that was happening and they were like yeah we're a little smaller than the NYPD and I was like man that's unbelievable. I'm sure you
1: get the same thing no matter where I go. Hey, uh, do you know John Smith? He was a cop in New York.
0: <laughs> right.
1: You know, oh yeah. <laughs> you know what, no matter where I end up going, I run into somebody I knew from the job. Remember first time I was in Disney, you know, down in Florida, you know, uh, there's guys I hadn't seen. Uh, one guy was in my academy class. I hadn't seen him since we graduated. Uh, you know, I've gone to Europe, you know, there's somebody I know, you know, it's, uh, it's a big department. It's spread out and uh, you know, it, you know, it, 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 it's just, uh, I think it's a staggering think about that kind of numbers. And then if you throw in all the retirees, I mean, it's, you know, talk about a fraternity, you know, yeah, yeah. bad guys would tell us, you know, my gang's going to come after you. I'm like, your gang, how many members do you have? I've got 40,000. What do you get? <laughs> nice. So
0: r- remind people a little bit about the 93 bombing and what happened there and sort of what uh, lessons were learned and what sort of changes uh, were put in place after that situation.
1: Well, the '93 bombing. I mean, you know, it, it's funny. The, the morning that happened, I was um, I was going around and, and doing a training at a police station in Brooklyn. I won't say which because they'll they'll ban me from there. But I mean, uh, you know, they were saying things like, "Oh, you're just justifying your existence. This stuff doesn't happen." And uh, I literally went back, uh, had lunch, and the phone rang. And when the phone rang, uh, it came in as a transformer blew in the Trade Center. I'm like, well, why are you calling us? I said, you know, uh, it's, it's a mechanical problem. And, uh, you know, next thing you know, we're looking out the window, we're seeing the smoke and everything I'm like, all right, let's go check it out. And, um, you know, we had terrorists uh, take a van with explosives, brought it down to the B2 and the B4 levels and uh, parked it in there, set a fuse and, and blew the place up. And, uh, you know, we, we only had a few people die, but I mean, thousands of people were hurt. Uh, you know, the damage of the building was extensive, but I, I think the damage uh, to the country in terms of, you know, this could never happen here, you know, I mean, we were so used to terrorism being something that would happen in Northern Ireland or uh, in the Middle East, you know, you, 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 you would see terrorist incidents in these countries in these areas. And you know now here it is down in the financial district. I, I, I most people don't know that, but that's, uh, the Trade Center uh, area is, is down uh, stone's throw from Wall Street. That's the big financial section. Mm-hmm. So de facto, it's the de facto center for uh, certainly the country and a good part of the world. And when you take something like that out, it's a big deal. But um, when you get there and you roll up on something like this, I mean, I I, I had been in uh, arson explosion since January. So I, I really hadn't had anything of, of this scope. I mean, I had come out of narcotics North, where I'm running around. This is a uh, East New York section of Brooklyn, which was the murder capital of New York at the time. I was super busy. Uh, you know, a lot of the, the crack epidemic was still red hot. Um, but I was running around doing search warrants and, and drugs. And now I'm dealing with uh, the financial district and people dying. And uh, you know, just uh, you know, my, my head was spinning. I mean, I I couldn't. I, the best part it was when my Lieutenant uh, Jerry Sheehan said, don't worry, it's yours, but the FBI is going to come in in about five minutes and take it away from you. And I was very glad they did. <laughs> uh, I always said, yeah, I worked on it. I made the coffee. <laughs> I was still learning a lot from well, everybody else.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, Bill, I could, uh, I could sit here and listen to you tell stories about that. And of course the, the situation with the world trade centers in, in 2001, all of, Day, but I definitely want to talk about your transition from you know NYPD to a private investigator. And then I definitely want to hear more about this story that we talked about just a little bit um, and and give that to our viewers because I don't think, and we'll get to this, that people recognize the connection between some of the, the the things that go on in the private sector and how they fund terrorism. Overseas that that trickles its way back through organized crime. So, you retired as a detective first grade, which is the highest level that you can achieve in NYPD. And then, where did you go from there? How did you eventually um, get to having your own private investigation business that you run now?
1: Well, I I was in the private sector uh, for a good deal of my police career. Um, You know, got married, got broke, had to do jobs, and. I was fortunate enough that uh, I got a lot of good opportunities. I ended up working for uh, Kroll Associates in New York. They're a big white shoe uh, PI and security firm. And I started doing a lot of work for them and uh, eventually became a supervisor for their guards. And uh, we we were running around doing all kinds of uh, high-end protection. We did, you know, the uh, John John Kennedy when he passed away, uh, a lot of heavy events, a lot of celebrities. A lot of high net worth people, and they're always having some kind of trouble. And it was an extension of that, you know, learning that and learning business from doing the business, learn from doing. Uh, I said, you know, eventually, you know, I could do this for myself. And I started a company with uh, another guy, and uh, we did that for a while. And then uh, we got divorced, I like to say, and uh, I went my way, and I, I stayed with my police career. Um, and when I finally retired, uh, I was working with another detective who retired and formed a company together. And uh, eventually we got divorced, and, and now I'm, I got my own shop. So I'm kind of happy with uh, how things are turning out. But uh, I, I've always been interested in, this, in these other aspects of it. And I always said a lot of the most interesting things I've done in my, my life and my career, I, I did in the private side. I mean, the, the police stuff was great, but, uh, you know, the, the PI stuff and then the security just... Uh, you know, I was going to sit and probably tell you my favorite stories, they'd all come from probably that side of the shop.
0: <laughs> well, that's interesting you say that because you know we exist as private investigators in the private security sector, not because these problems um, may not be legal issues or things that are happening criminal. It's that resources are limited and the police can't investigate everything. And oftentimes these cases are going to be managed uh, through the civil courts versus criminal Anyway, so there's a lot of opportunity for investigators to get involved in things that are uh, criminal matters, but we're actually working them for clients or companies that are looking at them from a standpoint of the money involved and how it's hurting their business. And you told me just a little bit about a story that I, I'm really interested in hearing because we, we both work in this uh, brand protection space uh of counterfeit goods illicit product whether it's gray market stuff straight counterfeit and the level of sophistication that we see is uncommon and sort of unheard of in the private sector and so this is a great story to explain to people just the lengths people will go to to get illegal product get counterfeit product into um into the U.S. and get it into the marketplace. So tell us a little bit about how this, first, this case first started. How did it come
1: across your desk? Um, you know, I do a lot of work mostly uh, in Chinatown, which is uh, Chinatown, New York. I know there's more Chinatowns in New York, but uh, you know, we were out there working for a lot of the uh, handbag manufacturers and the watch manufacturers, the fragrance manufacturers. and um, we were kind of working uh, almost like bounty hunters, you know, making our own cases, finding places, bringing it to the client and saying, Hey, you know, uh, this store has a problem. They're selling your stuff or these individuals. And uh, there was, there, there are many crews in Chinatown selling this and they're, they're very organized, but uh, we had one crew, uh, Vietnamese family and they were just, we kept finding their locations, busting them, seizing their cars. I mean, we were really a thorn in their side and it was, it was like a shell game, you know. they, they would keep moving from uh, one location to the next. We'd bust them at a commercial location, they would rent the residential location. And uh, they finally, I guess, felt the best way to avoid us was to avoid us completely and leave the state. Um, and, and how we got involved in this is we, we went to one of their old locations uh, just to verify if they were still there or not. And that was because one of our, our clients had said, hey, are we certain they're gone? Because we see the woman, Jennifer, still at the store, so we sent our undercovers in, and uh, they met with her. And um, very organized lady, you know, she would have a laptop uh, with all the images of the different brands. You know, you said, "I want this kind of a watch or I want this kind of a bag," and she'd bring it up on the screen, and uh, there'd be little numbers to it. You'd pick it out, and uh, instead of what she used to do, is send one of her people out. And they would get on a bicycle and you know go six or seven blocks to the location and then come back. Uh, I guess they felt like well my people are following them and uh, somehow compromising the locations. So here's what you did this time. She had family members come out with uh, Suburbans and they would pull up in front of the store on Canal Street, they would get in the car, they would drive down Canal Street and uh, our people thought they were taking us to a storage location or to some other location where they were going to uh, distribute the merchandise. But uh, to our undercover surprise, and, and certainly to my shock, they kept going down Canal Street, through the Holland Tunnel, into New Jersey, into Jersey City. When they got to Jersey City, they went to a residential uh, apartment building. They go into the apartment building, go upstairs, and there's a whole apartment that's turned into a fancy showroom for uh high-end trademark counterfeit goods, and I mean, they had everything, and they had really good qualities. It wasn't uh, quality stuff that was kind of the low end. They had higher end, nicer stuff. It was presented really well, and uh, when our people finished making their buy, instead of taking them in the suburban and driving them back to New York City, they brought them to the New Jersey path trains and put them on that, say, okay, that's how you get back to New York. I mean, it was a great plan. That way they they figured, you know, that's how we'll avoid these guys. We'll just take them. And uh, it's not a big trip from Canal Street to the Holland Tunnel. But uh, when it first happened, I was, like, furious with them. You know, we we tell our undercovers, don't get in cars. You know, we give them a whole bunch of don'ts. Right, right. uh, You know, they weren't answering their radios. They weren't answering texts. And, you know, of course, you know, I'm I'm flipping out. But uh, when they came back, I was like, don't do that again. But, man, I'm really glad you did. (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yes. So I want to go back just to the beginning of the story because th- this is what is oftentimes missed or just you know it, it, this kind of stuff's just underreported. You said that in the beginning when you were finding this one crew, you know, led by this one woman that you you would bust one place, you would do a raid, do a seizure, get some product off the street, clients are happy, You know, you check again, see what they were up to. They had moved to location somewhere else. Um, This speaks to the the lucrative nature of this type of crime. Is that they're they're willing to go to these lengths and move around and not give up on this product because they're they're making such such a high margin on it, and there's a demand out there that they want to fill. And so, regardless of you know, how much pressure you guys put on them, how many times you locate and shut them down They're They're going to continue to do what they're doing because there's a demand for that product.
1: It's, you know, not that I want to encourage anybody to go into the counterfeiting business, but I mean, it's, it's a great crime to commit because, and you know this yourself being in the same field, you know, there's very little enforcement. Uh, If you do get arrested, there's very little punishment on it. Um, the profit is great. The turnover is great. The customers come looking for it. And, you know, to be honest, a lot of people don't really seem to care about it. You know, if, if you get a, uh, some kid that gets sick because some toy has lead or has faulty pieces and gets hurt or somebody buys some uh, electronic device that goes on fire in their house, they'll get excited. Oh, maybe it was a fake. But, you know, when you're talking about luxury goods or clothing, you know, people just, you know, they don't care. They're, they're looking for bargains and the, uh, uh, you know, I, I don't think a lot of them are being taken advantage of when they're buying these these things on the street. At least they know what they're buying isn't real, but they right. don't care. And uh, yeah, we got so much money, and then they want to be part of that. But I mean, it, you know, it, it is money that's going to child labor. You know, and, and again, this is organized crime. You know, I mean, people don't know what's the big deal. I'm like, well, it, it is organized crime. I mean, we've uh, you know we we've actually been able to help the police with other cases through our work with this. I mean, we were in Atlantic City and there was a big problem out on the boardwalk with uh, people selling uh, pot out of stores and illegal knives and things. And uh, they really didn't have the resources to put into it. So we said, listen, well, these places are also selling fake goods. We'll go in with you and we'll make buys for this. And we end up getting search warrants and knocked out about a dozen stores. And uh, I don't think we've seen a big comeback with the counterfeiting down there, but, uh, that's how we were able to help them solve one of their problems by helping us service our clients. But I mean, the, the amount of uh, ingenuity that goes into this I mean, you know, it, it's uh, I always said if, if the drug dealers were as sophisticated as, as the counterfeiters, you know, the whole world would be full of op heads. I mean, you're, you're talking about people that are, are very good into counter surveillance. I mean, very early yep. uh, when I had started doing the, the trademark, you know, uh, we would have people come to the precinct and Watch and see, all right, when's the trademark teams coming out? Which cops are coming in? They'd know what days they were working, they knew when they were on vacation. Um, You know, we wouldn't let our undercovers come to precincts or anything. We'd have them, you know, meet at coffee shops or whatever because we couldn't bring them out there to get exposed. And, uh, you know, they'll take with cell phones and everything, and they're very tech savvy, they'll take pictures of the cars we're using that day. Uh, We used to rent a different van every day or different cars every day just because they would know and share the pictures of our car. Hey, they're out, here's their car, here's their plate. Um, You know, the old paper uh, catalogs that were popular for years. Now Mm -hmm. it's the information on their smartphone. What do you want? Oh, here it is. Here's the item. Um, Yeah.
0: So Bill, so many great points there. And I, I want our listeners to recognize that, you know, for many years when anyone thought about counterfeit, you know, they either thought about the guy uh, on the street with the trench coat and all the Rolexes hanging off there, you know, kind of like the movie TV type thing or just, you know, Chinatown. You know, it's just handbags, it's just wallets, it's just purses, it's just watches. And that was the mentality and people were like, "Well, who's that really harming?" You know, the person knows they're not buying a Rolex for $30 and they choose to do it but they're not recognizing all of the things that go into that. They're not recognizing the slave labor and the child labor that goes into creating that product in other parts of the world and then shipping it in. They don't realize that the same counterfeiters, the same logistics individuals, the the manufacturers, the shipping, the the, uh, wholesale, the retail, all of those individuals are involved in Um, not only other crimes outside of counterfeiting, but counterfeiting of other things like pharmaceuticals and consumer goods and electronics, things that can A, be dangerous, uh, deadly even. And those same people are opportunistic. You know, they're not loyal to a brand or a company or a type of product. You know, if they see an opportunity, which is why we're seeing so much counterfeit um, masks, the N95 masks or even just regular masks, the coronavirus test kits and all this other stuff that's happening right now, those same people who have all of these systems in place are the ones that are bringing that stuff in now that is harming people, could be deadly or providing protection for people you know, you know, who think they're protected, but now they're wearing something that isn't doing the job it's supposed to do. Those are all the same networks that may be working on something that you say is victimless or no one cares. It's a purse, it's a wallet, it's a watch. Those are the same. Nothing's
1: victimless. Nothing's victimless.
0: Yeah, exactly. And those are the same people doing the the things now that are, that are harming people um, in this current situation. So you're right. They will, they will get incredibly sophisticated. Now, I got to go back to to this day when you guys first saw this happen. So you had a, a meeting set up, with the woman to, you know, find out what you wanted. Was it gonna be a wholesale purchase? Was it going in as just like an individual customer who wanted to get a couple things?
1: We were absolutely certain that we had shut them down uh, at this location. And, and what she would do is you would go to the store on Canal Street and she would never sell you the goods there. Right. Have one of her confederates or sons or her brothers, they would come and walk you or steer you to another location where they would do the transaction but you would pay her right there. And she knew that uh, she was smart enough from, from past experience from us rating her that she wouldn't keep the goods inside the store. So when we went there, we didn't think A, that she'd be there or B, that, that she'd be dumb enough to uh, stay in a location where she knew we'd find her. And uh, you know, so we really went there uh, more to just check up so we can say, all right, this place is definitely out of business let's see where she's gone next or let's we'll see what she's up to. We knew she was still going to be in the business. We just didn't think it was going to be in the same location. Right. But, uh, we went in so there. The, under, the undercovers set.
0: just, when they saw her, they were like, okay, we're going to do something. And, and
1: Yeah. I mean, it was just, uh, you know, it, it was amazing because we had our, our people in the street. All right. They watched our people go inside. They're talking to her. Okay. Good, 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 good. What's going on next. And, uh, uh, for the folks that don't know, Canal Street's a very densely populated area. Uh, two-way traffic; uh, it, it's just nuts to be able to drive, and you really have to be on top of the place to really get decent
0: uh, visual. Yeah,
1: patients yeah. On, at least on Canal Street. There are other parts of Chinatown that are a little easier, but um, you know, we we didn't even see when the cars pulled up and they got in. We didn't even see it. They got into a big black suburban, and uh, like you know, yeah, which. You know, half the uh, Uber drivers and the, and the commercial cars use uh, the Suburbans going up and down. So it's 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 a fairly common thing to see. And, uh, you know, so we didn't really think anything was going to go on. And it really wasn't until, you know, we give our undercovers, I don't want to give the time parameters, but uh, right. we give them so much time where, right, if you don't check in by us, you know, we'll come and raise the set or we'll go in and, uh, you know, let them know we're out here. And, you know, they missed checkout time. They missed all the protocols kind of went out the window. And I'm, you know, I don't want to say I'm in a panic, but I'm 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 certainly uh you know, all right, where are these? These are experienced people. got mm-hmm. people know that they know what they're doing, but uh uh it was more than a little tension, especially when no one's answering, usually a text. Sometimes if you can't talk to me, you'll send me a text message yeah. or uh or something. So you
0: never you guys never you guys outside never saw them getting in those those suburbans. No. So they were on their own. They were completely sense. on their own. And wow. You know, it's almost like if you had seen them and they're using two vehicles, they're probably using one for counter surveillance. And who knows, they, they, they may have never taken those guys all the way if they had noticed you guys following them, if you had seen them get they, they
1: probably would They probably wouldn't have done anything. You know, we, we were, you know, for years we were down there and, and you know, we were hitting them. I mean, they, they were more afraid of us than the police because we were just constantly out there where the police would have their uh, you know, they would do enforcement on, you know, Tuesdays or Thursdays, you know, we were there constantly. And even if mm-hmm. we were aides, they knew we were taking pictures, watching what they were doing, you know, for another day. Um, and for a lot of our time down there, after we kind of got established, if they knew we were there, they would just go dead. They would go to lunch, wait, you know, they'd wait us out. Um, I mean, we had places that would just shut down and go home if they saw that we were out there. And, uh, you know, that that's tough for them to do because, like I said, you know, you lose a day, you lose a lot of business, especially if you're doing it on a weekend.
0: Yeah, yeah. Were they telling the undercovers in the, the Suburban where they were taking him?
1: No. Uh, they. Uh You know, it, on the way down to where the Holland Tunnel is, there are several large commercial storage places, and uh they said that they thought they were being taken to one of these commercial storage locations, which they're, mm-hmm. they're huge problems as well for uh for our business um and it wasn't until they passed all that but the, you're literally like when you pass these places another block or two you're you're in the tunnel traffic and uh you know they kept their cool they kept their heads about them and uh you know they're professionals they they did a great job but uh I said listen I'm really happy you got this information but please don't ever do this again right
0: right yeah that's scary were no cases where you're
1: uh you know, no case is worth your safety. I said, you know, we could have, I said, we could have just, uh, they pull up in the car. Okay. Listen, get the plate. We see how they're doing business. Now we'll watch, you know, then we'll follow the cars, you know, and let us do that, you know, but, uh,
0: kind of an an unwritten rule as investigators, not, not to get in someone else's vehicle during a undercover operation. It's, uh, it, it's tempting and it's hard to turn down because you know, you're about to get something you you didn't get before you know you're about to
1: yeah you know it's that mike and i think a lot of it too is that I, I i think a lot of people uh you know they don't think there's any violence with this oh it's just handbags oh it's just watches oh it's just clothing or whatever you know and you know they discount that some of these people not all of them but some of them are, are you know hardened criminals who you know i mean i i've uh been shocked to find out some of the things that have gone on in that community with, with violence and you know it's usually uh between themselves, they, they tend to not, uh, you know, bother law enforcement or the, you know, the call, the call we do, we have to call us the company guys work directly for the companies, but uh, you know, they are criminals and, and uh, you know, bad things can happen. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, you, you really have to make sure that you're, you're keeping your wits about you and like I said, the police department, you know, nothing's a routine job. You treat every job like, you know, it's a serious job and you could potentially get hurt. And, uh, yeah, you know, and that's, like, that's said,
0: that's the, like you had mentioned, not only is there other things going on and there's potential for violence, typically when we, you know, finally start to raid or put enough pressure on people, you find out there's other things going on. You know, these, oh yeah. these guys aren't just involved in this. There's, you know, there's actual drugs involved. There's counterfeit. There's, you know, obviously money laundering because they've got to move this money around somehow there's, you know, human trafficking in, in certain instances. And so there's, there's always something else. Huge amount of is, human trafficking.
1: Yeah. Which is a case that uh, guy, guy was a real uh, braggart. Um, his, his street name was Jason. I won't give you his real name. But he was out there selling and we did a uh, warrant with the members of the 5th Precinct. And uh, he had some showroom. I mean, this thing was you know, if, if I blindfolded you and brought you inside, you would think you were in an elegant showroom and super high-end stuff, real real nice outfit. But, uh, you know, again, all, all trademark counterfeit goods. And he, he had a beautiful Mercedes outside. And we, uh, working with the police, got the warrant for the store. But we also got a warrant for the Mercedes because he was moving the goods back and forth in the Mercedes. Mm-hmm. And uh, we expected certainly to find the, the handbags. What we found in the guy's car was we had 18... Chinese passports. And uh, the guy was what we call wow. a cakehead. And he basically brings people over from China and, uh, you know, they hold on to their passports and they make them work it off. And how do they usually work it off? Well, a lot of them end up, unfortunately, working it off in the sex trades or, uh, you know, some kind of indentured servitude. I mean, it's it's really a shame. And, you know, here's the guy walking around, bragging, you know, driving around the big car and, you uh, you know, all the passports, and here's a guy, he's a snakehead, so I mean, the handbags were really the, the, the least of the egregious things this guy was doing, I mean, he's, yeah, business of uh, buying and selling people, if you will, and I mean, you know, so there's your victimless crime, you know, right,
0: right, yeah, there's always more, there's always something else going on, and there's, all, there's always opportunity, because like you said, these guys are, the, these, these people are organized, and this is their business, very much so, yeah. It's not something they do on the side. It's uh no.
1: it really is their, their business. So, Bill- you know, it's interesting, Mike, that, that, uh, you, you know, uh, Chinatown is broken down by different ethnic groups. Um, you know, the, the, there's Chinese, Koreans, Vietnamese, there's the Italians. Um, and what's kind of funny is like the old expression, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. You know uh, they may compete with each other, but they were all sharing Intel on whatever we were doing. You know, they'd right. keep guys at the precinct. They'd have guys sit outside our office, uh, whatever it took to try to learn. And then the big cookie item every day was trying to find out what car we had you know, to get the plate and send it out. And, uh, you know, they would all share that intel with each other, uh, you know, it was kind of like, all right, you know, we'll keep for keep watching, we'll keep, uh, keep Chicky we'll for the guy. And, uh, you know, that kind of sophisticated and they would, you know, with, with technology, send the pictures out. Uh, they try to, they, they come to the store. What are they rating for? What brand? Uh, are they going for watches today or bags? Are they perfumes or, uh, you know, it, it's organized. These people know what they're doing.
0: Very, yeah. Very yeah. And, and they learn, they learn right away. They get, they get smart about tactics that, uh, companies are using. And, Absolutely. And law enforcement's using even when they get in. And yeah, that's the other thing, you know, rotating out of products and industry and different, um, is how they continue on, I mean you, you can have an investigation going for three to six months, and now they've switched on to the next product that they're going to deal with for the next six months and you you wonder where all those leads went and it dies and things change I mean the internet has obviously changed things tremendously what's going on right now with the pandemic has changed the way they're operating and, and things that they're moving around so
1: they're um, they're still out there though''re they're, they're, you know what oh they're, yeah they're doing a shipping business you know uh, I don't think people realize that we we had. I won't mention the shipping companies, but all the big commercial shipping companies have spots downtown. And uh, you go there towards the end of the night, you'll see vans full of these guys coming in. And, uh, you know, they're, they're taking it from Chinatown and shipping it to, you know, everywhere USA. Um, you know, the, the, they're not letting the pandemic stop them. They've got to make a living, too. And they'll find ways to, to, to get it out there.
0: Yep, they do because it, it's all driven by the demand. I mean, it on some level, there's there's people out there that want what they're providing, and if uh, if there wasn't a demand, they'd find something else that there was a demand for. So, Bill, I appreciate you you know enlightening everyone on the sophistication and, and the other problems that stem from this type of criminal activity and in continuing to work that angle for the companies and work to protect uh, consumers as well. It's a very important role that you play.
1: Oh, I appreciate that. You know, we say if you make it, they'll fake it. So, uh, you know, we've got to be out there trying to take it, get it off the streets. And, uh, you know, I I appreciate you helping us make uh, people aware of these problems because they they are problems. It's not a victimless crime. And you you are dealing with criminals. They are organized crime.
0: Yep, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Bill, you're based up in New York City, of course. Tell people how they can reach you and your company if they need to have anything investigated, whether it's uh, individual, personal matter, uh, company matter, whatever. Tell them uh, about your business, how they can reach you.
1: Well, we're Ryan Investigative Group. We're at ryaninvestigators.com. Uh, we're also Ryan Investigations on uh, Facebook and Instagram. Uh, you can also find us on uh, on 347-417-1610. You can email me directly at Bill2621. Yes, that was my badge, Bill2621 at AOL.com. And, uh, you know, we we do a lot of trademark work, but we're also doing missing person cases. Uh, I was an arson investigator, so we're also doing arson investigations. We're in the middle of an arson trial now. Uh, You know, there's probably nothing up in New York City we can't get done for you one way or the other. And we appreciate you reaching out to us, Mike.
0: Excellent. Excellent. Thanks, Bill. Well, I'm definitely uh, uh, looking forward to getting this one uh, produced and put out there for everybody. And I look forward to having you on again, because I know you got a ton of great stories. So to all of our listeners out there, all of you watching on our YouTube channel, uh, if you need something in New York City, you know how to contact Bill. And until next time, Keep an eye out because you never know when private eyes are watching watching you.